Amazon could be the local sports broadcaster of the future. MLB has had a weird offseason, and a court case could radically alter the college athletic landscape. It's Tuesday, December 19th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Reports today that Amazon could be investing in Diamond Sports Group, which would have big implications for the baseball media world. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Uh, great to have you. So what do we know about this potential deal to yeah, bring in Amazon into the Diamond Sports Group and therefore the regional sports network picture? Yeah, potentially a pretty big deal here that uh, uh, Amazon had been a uh, a small minority investor in the Yes Network, the Yankees RSN, on a standalone basis. Uh, but what's now being discussed is a much broader and larger investment in the entire Diamond uh, Sports Group business. Um, you know, obviously covering uh, RSNs uh, all across the country. And for now, uh, you know, having an access into uh, baseball broadcasts, hockey broadcasts, NBA broadcasts, at least for the time being. Uh, so this could potentially really ramp up what Amazon is doing domestically in sports. They've obviously got the NFL Thursday night rights, uh, you know, some other small things on the margins here. But this would be another really big stake in the ground in terms of its U.S. sports uh operations. And just to hammer this out completely here is the assumption that if Amazon made this move, we would be seeing um, regional sports network broadcasts on Amazon the way we have Thursday Night Football. Correct. Correct. And um, but that's one of the interesting things, because, you know, again, using the Thursday Night Football example in the NFL, that's all sort of filtered through the prime video uh, platform. Uh, Would this strictly be through prime video or some sort of other hybrid type of situation where it is and then still you know potentially available through a regional carrier uh you know or you know through a regional distributor or some other situation we don't know there's a lot of uh, open questions on this and again the entire rsn business is sort of changing in real time here uh but for me, one of the big things is that this really potentially turns the boat around uh, for Diamond. There's been a lot of chatter about a potential liquidation that uh, they were sort of parting with rights. They made this deal with the NBA that they were going to uh, give back their team rights at the end of the season uh, in return for some concessions there. Um you know, potentially other similar deals with the other leagues. Uh, Sinclair, the current parent company of Diamond, had said that there was, you know, was a increasing likelihood of a Diamond uh, Chapter Seven proceeding, a liquidation, uh, and maybe this uh, Amazon uh, investment, if it comes to fruition, um, you know, nullifies that notion and maybe gives uh, a new path forward for a reorganization. Yeah, for the longest time, Diamond seems to have been saying, look, like we're we, we intend to keep being a company and keep broadcasting sports and feels like everyone else is saying doesn't really look like that's realistically a possibility. But yeah, with Amazon's money behind it um, and Amazon, you know, it seems like they don't need to make this profitable necessarily right away. They could be doing this, you know, to uh, strengthen its user base and keep people subscribed to Amazon Prime. And if that's, you know, a $50 million, $100 million loss in year one, so be it. It's Amazon. They can afford it. 
Yeah, you're obviously talking about one of the world's richest men with Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, ultimately bankrolling this thing. But, um, you know, again, we've talked about all the changes in the RSN business and, you know, there's cord cutting and a lot of pressures there. But not only do you have the resources of Bezos, but one of the things that they really have um, in any scenario is that you think about if you're a baseball fan, a hockey fan, a basketball fan, the amount of time that you spend on your local RSN over the course of a season yeah, it adds up to massive hours. And, you know, one of the things about that business and one of the things why it's still around, even in its sort of challenged form, is that, you know, there is a it may not necessarily be the biggest audience, but it's a very steady and habitual audience. And those fans keep coming back day after day, game after game. And again, the challenge for Diamond in its current form and potentially its future form here that we're talking about is finding a way to take those assets and really harness it into something new. Because again, that fandom is still there. And of course, we just spoke yesterday about how Major League Baseball has a framework agreement, not a done deal. And this is also not a done deal with Diamond uh, to at least provide some still stability for 2024. I have to wonder if it's not a coincidence that uh, we're getting these reports on back-to-back days. I don't think so. And, and you know, there's been various discussions uh, uh, between baseball and Amazon over the years about working together in various ways. Uh, again, I mentioned the Yes Network situation before, so they're certainly not unfamiliar with each other. And, you know, those investments, you know, generally are vetted at the league level. So, these companies know each other, but we also see what Amazon is doing with the NFL and all the success they're having with Thursday night football and the audience growth here that, um, you know, having that energy and that broadcast innovation and, and, and the kind of push that Amazon is giving that product, um, certainly baseball would love to have, you know, some elements of that energy, uh, again, that we're seeing in and around Thursday night football. Yeah, absolutely. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. The MLB free agent market has been a strange one this offseason. Many teams don't know how much money they'll be getting from local broadcasts, typically one of their biggest sources of funds, and that's making some teams very tentative. Minnesota Twins president of baseball operations Derek Falvey acknowledged that at the winter meetings, saying that the team was going to pare back this year, in part due to the media uncertainty. Not every team is being that explicit, but some have been notably quiet, like the Texas Rangers, who just got a windfall from winning the World Series, but so far haven't been in on the big names this offseason. However, that trend is not evenly distributed. The Dodgers obviously signed Shohei Otani to a $700 million contract, which is closer to $450 million in 2023 dollars, but that's assuming we know the conversion between $2023 and $2034, which we don't. Also, someone is going to spend hundreds of millions on Yoshinobu Yamamoto. The initial estimates were around $200 million. There are disputed reports that he has offers above $300 million. The Dodgers, Giants, Mets, Yankees, Red Sox, and Phillies are all in on him. As baseball wades through a period of economic uncertainty, we're seeing which teams are more or less unaffected. LA, San Francisco, and the big East Coast markets are gunning for superstars. Most everyone else is making do with the leftovers. Over to a baseball team that is making some big moves. The Savannah Bananas are launching a cruise. Baseball doesn't work especially well on a boat, even a large one, but the Savannah Bananas are much more than a baseball team. The cruise, which is called Banana Land at Sea, will include a four-night round trip to the Bahamas, some kind of battle between the bananas and a team called the Party Animals, a trip to a private island, and a game at Lone Depot Park, home of the Miami Marlins. Even as they have exploded in popularity with over 200 million ticket requests for their upcoming national tour, the Bananas have steadfastly kept the get-in price for their games at $35. On the secondary market, you'll be hard-pressed to find tickets under 150 
A cruise, however, is a different animal, and that seems to be an avenue for the bananas to turn their huge popularity into a big source of revenue. Tickets for Banana Land at Sea range from $2,000 to $30,000, and they are already 80% sold, even though the cruise doesn't happen until next October. Up next, our own Amanda Kristovich is in Los Angeles observing a court case that could make some college athletes employees. We checked in on the case itself and the huge potential implications of the trial. That conversation is coming up next. Amateurism at the collegiate athletic level is on trial. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. So you're in L.A. covering a trial stemming from an unfair labor practice charge against USC, UCLA, the Pac-12, and the NCAA that could be the next big domino to fall in the huge ongoing changes in college athletics. What is this case all about? Yeah, so um, the case was originally filed against those four entities, um, but important to note that since it has been filed, UCLA was kicked off the docket. Um, so now it's just USC, Pac-12, and NCAA for sort of like labor law jurisdiction reasons. Essentially, um, the case is arguing that um, Division One football and basketball players at USC have been misclassified um, as amateurs when under federal labor law, they should be classified as employees. Um, and that means employees of school, the conference, and the NCAA. So um, the implications could be massive. This is one of those, you know, one of the several cases that could end up killing amateurism. Um, And uh, yeah, it just got started in person uh, this morning. And I would have to assume that if it is ruled that these these athletes should be considered employees, would that apply to all D1 football and basketball players? Theoretically, it would based on um, the way that the um, NLRB is kind of prosecuting this case because the idea, so the NLRB only has jurisdiction over the private sector, um, right? So only private schools. But if you make the argument, which they're trying to do, that um, athletes are not just employees of the school, they're also employees of a conference and the NCAA, then any school that's part of a conference or part of the NCAA in Division One, aka all of them, um, would be subject to the ruling. Um, again, it's only football and basketball players, men's and women's, um, in Division One. So, you know, there are a lot of other athletes who would not be included in this. Um, but if things go as planned for uh, the organization that filed this charge, the answer would be yes. And, and let's just hammer out some of the implications that could come from athletes, be, college athletes being treated as employees. So minimum wage laws, health benefits, I assume. Um, any, what, what are kind of the big pieces here that um, become live if, if they become employees? Yeah, I mean, it would be a complete change to the way that um, NCA rules work, a complete change. Um, you know, athletes, like you said, would be subject to uh, salaries. They would also be allowed to apply for a union to potentially collective, collectively bargain. Um, you know, and it's not just collectively bargaining for salary, it's collectively bargaining for all the benefits that as a, an employee in the United States receive, right? 
So the other thing um, is that athletes would be able to, you know, bring lawsuits to their schools um, based on the laws of uh, the U.S. labor market, right? So, like, one of those is workers' compensation. Um, Workers' compensation is something that the NCAA has specifically fought against having to, you know, pay out. Um, That's part of the reason that they, you know, have created this amateurism model. The phrase student athlete was a legal term that they made up to um, prohibit the sort of legal ramifications of needing to pay workers' compensation. So it's not just like getting paid. It's every single right that you have as an employee in the United States, these athletes would now get. And with that workers' comp provision, or, you know, with them being eligible for workers' comp, I, would that mean that, you know, a football player gets hurt, can no longer play, then they get payouts for, um, you know, as you would if, if you get hurt on the job anywhere else? Theoretically, yes. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of momentum toward some form of athlete compensation, whether that's revenue sharing or, you know, them just being employees. UCLA's Chip Kelly was the latest to chime in there. We've had some other big names, um, you know, s- support that idea. Is And the, the courts, you know, are theoretically supposed to be kind of outside that public discourse in a way. Do we do you get any feel for that momentum making its way into the courtroom or is that is it just too soon to say right now? Oh, it's absolutely making its way into the courtroom. I mean, look, in this courtroom, can't speak to that at this point. Uh, it's too early to tell. But I would say in, um, you know, and this is a National Labor Relations Board court. It's different from, you know, the local and federal courts where I've covered, um, you know, other cases. But Absolutely. Um, the court of public opinion is influencing what's happening and what the judges appear. You know, they're very they're way more educated on these issues than they were before. You know, in California, there's a federal court where like every single one of these types of cases goes through the same district court judge. Um, like and you can just tell by the line of questioning. And this was definitely the case at the Supreme Court level um, that the justice, the justices and, you know, the judges at lower levels, you know, start out being very skeptical of the NCA's business model. Um, and I think that, you know, when I was in a hearing in the Third Circuit, which is in Philadelphia, and I can't even remember how many months ago that was now, but like it was at least eight months ago. Um, the three judges had never, as far as I know, heard any type of case like this. Um, and they were, you know, their line of questioning was very um, combative, I would, I would call it, towards the NCAA. I have a Supreme Court question for you in a minute, but first, there are also there are other cases, um, some of which are in the past and some are still ongoing. Um, specifically, one involving Dartmouth that where the the ruling has has yet to arrive. Um, is that does that overlap here at all? Absolutely, it's a different type of case. Uh, it's also an NLRB case, but the Dartmouth men's basketball players a few months ago, um, with the backing of the union that works with. Uh, like, you know, the students, student workers on campus, um, on that campus, filed a petition to unionize with the NLRB. Um, That was heard a couple months ago. We're waiting for a ruling. It's a different type of um, 
charge, you could say, a different type of complaint because it's athletes themselves asking to unionize versus this is an outside organization um, accusing um, employers of unfair labor practices. Um, Ultimately, though, I think like the effects of a ruling in the athlete's favor in either of these cases will have the same result because it's kind of like if you're ruled an employee, then you could, you know, try to collectively bargain and form a union. If you are allowed to unionize, then that implies that you're considered an employee. You see what I'm saying? So a ruling in favor of the athletes in either of these cases would um, be very detrimental for the NCAA. And just on this case, is there anything about, you know, USC, UCLA, the Pac-12, the NCAA um, that is special here? Or could this argument be made with any any private entity, um, you know, in, in college athletics? I mean, I think that the general concept that um, you know, a power five, you know, a big division one program treats, you know, the way that it operates, um, it's football and men's and women's basketball players should be employees. And that misclassification, that student athlete classification obviously extends to all of them. Um, but you know, we'll see when the witnesses take the stand, um, clearly there is something about USC, something about the access of information that the organization has, um, you know, has chosen to do this. Um, that organization, by the way, is run by a former UCLA football player who has been behind all the major antitrust cases and the failed Northwestern unionization attempt in 2014. So, you know, I mean, he clearly has, I imagine there will, there will be testimony, um, you know, because he has a relationship with the Southern California athletes community. Um, it's easier for him to do this than to go to like Nebraska, for example. My guess is that one way or another, this is going to find its way to the Supreme court. You know, obviously it's up to them whether or not they take the case, but one, do you agree with that? And two, do we have any hints from the Alston ruling that legalized NIL or anything else that might uh, indicate where the Supreme court is leaning on this whole issue? Um, yeah, we definitely have um, the opportunity for this to go all the way to the Supreme Court. There are several steps, and I'm sure both sides will appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and look, I mean, Alston was a much more specific case with a, a much less big implication, you know, smaller implications for the NCAA. But, you know, the justices ruled 9-0 in, in favor of the athletes in that case. And uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who's not necessarily known for being a particularly liberal justice, wrote a scathing concurring opinion, calling the NCAA's business model flatly illegal in any other industry. Um, And it was essentially an invitation to bring more cases that were more radical to, you know, the Supreme Court. So I would not be surprised if this went all the way to the Supreme Court, and I would not be surprised if the Supreme Court took the case, and I would not be surprised if they ruled in favor of the athletes. But, you know, the makeup of the Supreme Court could change also, maybe, I don't know, depending on many personal and professional things. So um, we'll just have to wait and see. All right, Amanda Kristovich, I know you're always south of me, but hope my home state treats you well. Thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. We'll get you through the holidays. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.